danger is stealing in as relapse sums above the den. It's hard to know if this will Hello and welcome to episode 374 of the Thinking Poker Podcast from Owings Mills, Maryland. I'm Andrew Brokus. And from Las Vegas, Nevada, this is Carlos Welch. We have got a strategy-packed episode for you today. Uh, I think not even a lot really to tell you off the top. Um, The one thing I do want to tell people in case they uh, ran into this earlier this week, um, I guess last week by the time you're listening to this, uh, NickCast.com was down for a little while. We had some uh, confusion with... uh, re-upping our uh, ownership of that domain name but we do have it again so nickcast.com uh the store is up and running there again if you're interested in the weekend warrior podcasts you can get ebooks of uh, play optimal poker and play optimal poker 2 and essential poker concepts um you can get the strategy video that carlos and i did on exploiting small stakes uh tournaments all of that is available at www.nitcast.com n-i-t-c-a-s-t.com and of course the very best place to get more strategy from carlos and me is from our daily strategy podcast uh, thinking poker daily which is available at patreon.com slash thinking poker daily uh, i think that's it we're ready to dive into strategy yeah <laughs> um, did you not want to talk about the things we talked about before? Oh, I thought I thought you weren't ready to talk about those yet. Oh, okay. You know what? I'm sorry. I thought okay. I miss I misunderstood what you were saying ahead of time. Um, no, I definitely I definitely want to talk about those things. Okay, then let's yeah. let's do it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So. Um, uh, basically, Andrew asked me if, like, you know, if there was anything uh, going on uh, uh, with me before, um, uh, outside of um, the strategy segment that I wanted to talk about, and I couldn't think of anything until he asked me that question, and that jogged my memory. So, um, uh, he was saying that we should talk about. He was asking if I wanted to talk about those before we record. I thought he was just jogging my memory. So anyway. Um, so what I'm um, up to as far as playing poker, um, playing online, not much um, has happened in terms of good results. I've been winning a lot of satellites and then promptly like not cashing the satellites <laughs> or min cashing. I mean the main tournament when I when I play, but you know it's nice to uh, win a lot of 1K um, satellites. But eventually that'll turn around. Um, the main thing um, that I've been working on lately is. Um, a product with um, Alex, which um, is a review of my bracelet win, combining um, all the advice I've received from my various coaches, including Andrew, Ryan, uh, Giraffe, uh, Giraffe Ganger. I never know how to say that name. I always stutter when I try to pronounce it. I even asked um, him when he was on the show, and I still don't know how to say it. <laughs> yeah, it seems like most people go with giraffe, so I'm just going to say giraffe, but I feel like that has to be wrong. Uh, giraffe Ganger 7, and now also Alex. Like All these guys have reviewed my um, bracelet win with me, and now we're just combining all those pieces of advice to um, um, give to the people in one package. So, package. So, I've been working on that for a while, and... Um, also, um, the, uh, I mentioned that, uh, things have not been going great on the tournament scene lately. In fact, the last time I won a tournament was December, um, um, playing online. That tournament, I'm going to be working on a article with Car Player Magazine for, um, a couple of hands that I played at that final table, so that should be out in the next couple of weeks, I guess. Um, and the big news, well, I don't know if this is big news, who knows if this is going to happen, but it's exciting to me. Um, 
I got contacted by a reporter from the Washington Post um, earlier today in my DMs, and he seems interested in writing a story about my poker journey. So um, if that happens, that would be pretty exciting. Um, that would be just another feather in my cap that I can use to try to impress my mom since <laughs> thousands of dollars didn't do it. <laughs> I feel like your mother has got to be uh, extremely impressed with you already. Yeah, yeah, she's getting there. <laughs> I mean, for reasons that have nothing to do with poker. True, true. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But yes, that is very exciting, and uh, I would uh, certainly love to read and maybe even be quoted in such an article. For sure, for sure. Well, that's all I got. All right, Anything sorry going for, on with you? for cutting you off earlier. No, 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 no problem. Our first question, maybe our only question, depending on how long we end up talking about this, uh, comes from Rick, who uh, is, is putting you and me into direct uh, competition with one another here. Uh, he says, I have a theory question about shifting gears in tournaments versus making one optimal decision at a time. Page 333 of Play Optimal Poker 2 states that tournament play is not that different from cash game play, and the only exceptions are the final table bubble and final table play, which theoretically advocates uh, tighter play because of ICM. However, Carlos's Carlos style advocates for playing looser during the pre-bubble stage, with more opening and bluffing looking to chip up and build a big stack that can appease the bubble. Does this mean that the pre-bubble stage is another part of the tournament where we should deviate from cash game play? Let's say we have an average stack throughout a tournament with 400 entrants paying 50 spots. Would the following be a good way to look at how we should shift gears? In the early stages, with uh, 100 or more people remaining, play roughly the same as a cash game. In the pre-bubble phase, so 50 people getting paid with 100 to 70 people left, play a Carlos style to chip up to the big stack and abuse the bubble. On the bubble, with uh, 70 to 50 people remaining, play tight because of ICM, unless we are the big stack or the short stack. Post-bubble, 50 to 30 players remaining, play more value because the short stacks will be looking to gamble. Uh, Pre-final table bubble, 15 to 30 people left, play a card loose style to chip up to the big stack and abuse the final table bubble. On the final table bubble with 10 to 15 people remaining, play tight because of ICM unless we are the big stack or the short stack. And then final table, play tight because of ICM unless we are the big stack or the short stack. Um, so I guess first question is, do you feel like he's, he's fairly, uh, summarized your advocacy here? Um, I will say yes, but only because this is a summary of his summary. <laughs> his initial, his initial summary had some, a few things in there that, uh, I think maybe he misheard me say, or maybe I said it something incorrectly, but I'll re-summarize it to where, um, it's now pretty in line with how I actually play in soft games. Nice. Because um, I think that when I say um, it, you know, it doesn't differ that much from, from cash game play, certainly a lot of things will differ in terms of the hands that you might play from various positions because of antes and, and because of shallower stacks and, and things like that. Um, what I mean is that it doesn't... Um, Usually the question I'm asking myself when I'm in a tournament, except at these particular phases of the tournament, generally the question I'm asking myself is just what is the play that's going to get me the most chips at the end of this hand? Like it has the highest expected value measured in terms of chips. I'm not doing a lot of thinking in terms of like, oh, it's really important that I preserve my tournament life, or it's really important that I maintain a stack of a certain size or, or try to run up a big stack or something like that. Like I'm not deliberately making plays that I think have a lower expectation in terms of chip value um, because I have an interest either in, in survival or an extreme interest in trying to accumulate a, a large stack, um, which is, of course, when I'm playing a cash game, the, your, your chip EV correlates pretty much perfectly with your dollar EV, so you know, making the most money also means trying to accumulate the most chips. In tournaments, those two things don't always track. Um, the times when they deviate the most are in these like high ICM situations, and while technically they never track perfectly with one another, I think that practically people 
cause more problems for themselves trying to um, like put a premium on survival in, in tournaments has been my experience and that they would be better off just kind of asking themselves which play has the highest expected value measured in terms of chips rather than thinking constantly about like oh if this doesn't go well i'm gonna be out of the tournament uh, that that's kind of the thing that i meant to be um speaking against there yeah i i agree with you that people definitely tend to put um, too much emphasis on survival at certain stages of the tournament and it is it's, it's a difficult subject to um, discuss because like there's different tournament types and like even like like survival on the bubble is more important in big field tournaments than small field tournaments even if they're like the exact same no limit hold'em tournaments as like obviously it's going to be different if it's a satellite or something so it's hard to you know have like a standard um a standard tournament type to discuss these sort of things so i think we do run the risk of people hearing us discuss one sort one sort of situation and um extrapolating that to a different sort of situation where it doesn't apply so much but yeah i think you're right in that um the average player um tends to overvalue um some of these things and i think the the biggest difference that there might be in in those two approaches is what he is highlighting of the the like Carlos thing of you know are, are there stages of the tournament where you would say I, I'm deliberately doing something here that I think is is sort of like a slightly negative EV risk if we were just thinking in terms of um, just just measuring the chips that I'm likely to win or lose in this hand but I'm I, I like that you see a disproportionate value in having a large stack coming into the bubble such that you actually are kind of going out of your way to put a premium on accumulating chips even if it means um like that you you essentially like want the variance of i'm either going to get eliminated or you know i'm either going to lose a big pot or win a big pot but the value of winning a big pot is so high that i'm willing to even like have a slightly negative expected value just in terms of chips won or lost on this hand uh, no, and that's one aspect of his initial summary that I read into it that I thought was slightly incorrect, which is why I reworded it for the um, sake of the podcast. So I'm not taking negative EV spots, and I think the word that he used is that I'm more gambly um, in this pre-bubble stage. It's not gambly in terms of... Um, me making slightly bad calls or slightly bad jams is me gambling in terms of going outside of a theoretically correct framework in an equilibrium if I think my opponents will allow me to do so. So the way this comes up a lot is when I identify a player um, in this pre-bubble stage, so let's say, like I, I, I tend to define this as the time when late reg ends, up until the time that you know you're like say two or three levels from where you expect the um, um, bubble to burst. So at that stage, um, you have a lot of players that have you know between like say 30 and 40 bigs, and those players from that stack size whoever if, if you get two players if the average stack at the table is say 30 to 40 bigs and then you get two 30 to 40 big blind stacks that um, if they get all in the winner is going to be the um, chip leader going the big stack at the table going into the bubble that stack is going to be able to win more than his fair share of pots assuming that everyone is appropriately um i see him aware so at that stage of the tournament is where i'm looking for vulnerable players so players who are uh, not three betting often enough maybe not appropriately tightening their defending ranges from the big blind to account for um i see him 
and also not appropriately protecting their check call ranges. Like these are the players who I'm going to, if I expect I can open, have this player defend, and I can barrel this player off of his wide, big blind defending range um, by the river due to the fact that he can see that we're approaching the bu the um, bubble and there's a chance if he folds, he can, you know, fold his way into the money. I'm exploiting that, but I don't view that. I don't view that as gambling because I've identified an opponent in a situation where I think I have a lot of fold equity. Mm. So I'm not calling light versus these sort of players. I'm basically using the structure of the game and to my advantage the structure of the game meaning that icm puts a a large um risk aversion on the player that's facing bets so because of that i want to be the guy making the bets in these situations yeah and i think the the important thing here is that if, if we imagine like a simple situation where you're just to keep the math simple like you're shoving the river for a pot size shove as a bluff right so you need your opponent to fold at least half the time for this to be like a, a break even or, or you know ideally a plus ev play if they fold more than half the time your expectation is that they will in fact fold more than half the time right you're not saying like well it's it's like super important for me to win this pot because if I do win this pot I'll be a big stack and I can abuse the bubble and if I don't win this pot I'm going to be a short stack and I'm going to like net lose chips on the bubble so even though I don't think my opponent's going to fold more than half the time I'm going to go for the shove anyway like your your belief is that because of the the structure of the tournament and the incentives and maybe certain mistakes your opponents are going to make that in fact they will fold often enough to make this a, a bluff that has a positive uh chip EV expectation Yes, yes. If I don't think they're going to fall often enough, I don't make this bluff. In fact, I tend to set this up in situations where, in my experience, they do fall much more than they need to. So a good example of this would be a situation where, say, I'm opening from, like, the hijack. And the big blind calls with, say, 30 to 40 bigs. And we get, like, a flop of something, like say nine seven deuce i bet this guy calls and the turn is some overcard. i bet again he calls and then the turn is like another overcard that don't that doesn't complete the um draws most opponents when they get to this point they're gonna have second or third pair at best because too many of these players, if they were to like flop or turn to pair, they would check raise. So their check calling range is not protected in the sense that it's kind of capped at one pair or the few uh, two pairs that they would have made on the river. Um, and the one pairs that they've been calling down with are often, um, they were top pair on the flop or second pair on the flop, and they turn into like second or third pair by the river, and I just don't expect this player type to, like they tend to call down to lose in order to get to the river in hopes that you're not going to put them all in. And then when you actually put them all in, they realize, oh, all I have is second pair here. My tournament life is on the line. If I fold now, I can probably fold my way into the money. Uh, in that situation, I think they really only call that river bet if they make two pair. And they're only going to make two pair in that situation maybe around like 20% of the time at, I'll at the, the most. Um, maybe I shouldn't say make two pair. I should say show up with a hand that can call the river bet. Mm. So either that's going to be some two pairs or maybe some other hands they would have made along the way. So like, for example, if I mentioned... Like nine seven deuce maybe they have jack ten and one of the over pairs one of the over cards was a jack so maybe they don't have maybe they have top pair on the river but when you count the when you look at the range that it gets to this river with um they're gonna have less than top pair probably like 80 percent of the time um or more <laughs> and that's about how often i expect them to fold to a river shove which 
I generally set it up to where it's around a pot size bet. So that bet needs to work 50% of the time to break even. But in my experience, it works something like 70 to 80% of the time. And that's a much higher um, spread than I need it to be uh, for this um, play to be profitable. So to your point, these are not thin edges that I'm taking advantage of here. But what makes it seem gambly is that if I expect to be able to set this up and I expect to not get called very often, then my starting hand doesn't matter so much. So for that reason, I open a much wider range in the beginning than charts would suggest. And I think that is what makes this strategy appear more gambly. And it's also why I named it car loose because I'm looser than the charts say and I'm probably triple barreling in spots where a chart where um, a GTO um, player wouldn't but that's because a GTO player would expect his opponent to be more protected on the river and I don't expect that from my opponents yeah that's a great explanation and what I really want to underscore about that and I think that your explanation pretty much already has is that there's there's a lot of calculation behind this i mean maybe not literal calculation where you're like counting combinations but i mean you have a sense of what is the underlying math in terms of how often you need your opponent to fold and how often you expect them to fold and like knowing that they're going to make that mistake later that you can then like that essentially increases the ev of what would otherwise be some like slightly negative ev opens like they become positive with the expectation that your opponent is going to make this particular mistake and you're going to have the opportunity to exploit it. So this isn't just a sort of, um, like, I, what, what makes me nervous, like, I don't really disagree with any of Rick's the characterizations of these different phases of, of the tournament. What makes me nervous about them is when people use this kind of, and I don't mean to imply that Rick is necessarily doing this, it's just why I'm reluctant to, like, wholeheartedly endorse it, is when people use this as a substitute for thinking about what kind of edge they might have in a given situation and this can go in both directions where sometimes people get panicky and they're like well i just needed to win some chips so i had to take a chance and there's no (laughs) there's no discussion of like whether or not this is actually a plus ev show you know people just get down to like eight big blinds and they're like i I was short and i you know i I saw uh i saw an ace and i didn't even look at my second card i just went all in right so you know there's there's pretty clear math on like what are profitable hands to shove from various positions and then there are reasons to deviate from that if you believe your opponents will call you know more or less tight than than they should but um there's there's no reason not to approach or like i mean ideally you you should be trying to approach that in in a mathematical way and likewise when it comes to like passing up um this gets talked about a lot around tournaments of you know should i should i take a thin edge if you know the first hand of the wscp main event someone goes all in for uh you know and then you have uh, pocket queens and they show ace king do you call like that that sort of um a hypothetical question and i think too often people try to resolve the way that you know nate mavis would say this is trying to turn a hard question into an easy one where instead of like thinking about whether the spot is actually plus ev or like how much of an edge they're giving up people are just like well i don't want to risk elimination so i folded it's like well I mean, okay, it's one thing to pass up, like, oh, I needed 49.6% equity to call there, and I thought I had 50.1, but I decided to pass up that small edge. But, you know, when it's like, I didn't want to take a flip, so I didn't call that shove with ace-king. And it's like, well, you didn't even know that it was a flip. Like, the person might have been shoving ace-queen. Also, there's already a ton of money in the pot. So, like, if you knew that you had a 50% chance of winning, you only needed, like, 42% equity to call. So there's nothing close about calling if you thought it was truly a coin flip. You know, I think those those kinds of spots where people are not even, like, trying to eyeball the math, but instead just either, you know, I, I wanted to win chips, so, so I took a risk, or uh, I didn't want to get eliminated, so I didn't take a risk. And those are both you know very simplistic and, and not mathematically oriented ways of thinking about whether or not you're going to take a risk in, in a certain spot and i worry that these kinds of just rough like oh i play tight at this stage of the tournament i play loose at this stage of the tournament or <laughs> you hear you know i think daniel and has mentioned this before like i want to have 100 big blinds at the end of every level or something <laughs> and I'm like, okay, i want to have a million big blinds at the end of every level like i can't just make that happen <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it, that that's the risk we run as coaches, right? Like, so I know a lot of the stuff that I advocate for, 
I have studied off the table and I've done the math off the table. But a lot of times for the sake of brevity, when I'm talking about it publicly, I just kind of give the conclusions without giving the underlying math. And that's dangerous because there's a lot of people, especially when the thing I'm advocating for is like, you know, opening some hand you shouldn't opening, you should be opening and triple barreling in some spot where you shouldn't be triple barreling. Uh, a lot of people are naturally more aggressive players that are drawn to that and if they don't know the math that got me to that point they don't know how to find the right spots that um to that they should be doing that in and they can definitely take it too far another thing i'll say um quickly from um uh, this whole conversation that is in line with what you wrote in the book is that notice that the Carlos style is more about using aggression to take advantage of players in the spot where they should have, um, where I should have more fold equity than normal. Because A, we're approaching the bubble, and B, because these players don't protect their ranges often enough. What I'm not doing is making loose calls in these situations Mm -hmm. and this is something straight out of your book in the chapter that um, Rick mentioned one of the um, um, key lessons you say is um, and I'm reading directly from the book here play optimal poker 2 risk aversion influences the caller more than the better making a big bet a big bet especially an all-in bet is not nearly as risking as calling such a bet when you make a big bet, there is typically a good chance your opponent will fold, which is a low-variance outcome. When you call a big bet, you guarantee a high-variance outcome. So when I initially read Rick's comments about the Carlu style means playing gambling, uh and looking to get all your money in uh, in the pre-bubble stage in order to have a big stack to then abuse the bubble, I kind of cringed a little bit because I was like, that sounds like it's too vague and it may give people the impression that I'm making loose calls or like you even suggested earlier, uh, maybe some like negative EV calls when it's not that at all. It's some more, although it's a looser strategy than a GTO chart would suggest, is actually to your point in the book, a more low variance strategy because you're putting people in positions where they fold a lot and that's a low variance thing. Yeah, that's um, that's a good point to make. The the thing that I was thinking about earlier when, when you were saying a lot of people, or you know, as a coach, you're you're sort of stuck, and certainly I know this both as, as a coach and as an author as well, of trying to draw that line between how much detail to to give people. And I think a lot of people you know will say that they want or, or think that they want like oh yeah just just give me the outcome like I don't I don't need to see the the math behind it I don't need to see like the justification behind it just tell me what to do and the problem is that you you can't really do that right? I mean you like I think even like you're not trying to say here oh yeah just raise any two cards and triple barrel off no matter what um like there are some specifics to it that you don't necessarily have to like have done the actual calculations yourself but you do need to understand the why to be able to you know like you're not like no one's going to be able to just tell you like here's how to play every situation you're ever going to encounter at a poker table yeah, yeah. so it, it's really not as simple because they send people will do that be like oh you know you said to triple barrel so here i triple barreled and it didn't work you know or, or and then either you know, might have just been unlucky or it might have been it was not actually a time when when you would have advocated doing that so it is it is tricky to sort of meet that desire for um i just want the like the reader's digest version like just just tell me what to do i don't need to know the why why to do it um but i think you do i guess that's the whole solve for why uh, <laughs> right like I, yeah. I think understanding the why is important for anyone who I, mean, I think essentially for our target audience like, i mean there is a point where if i were teaching someone who had never played poker before i mean we're not diving straight into uh, you know indifference and um <laughs> the like and i was sort of like okay just just play these hands from these positions and if you're betting the, just always bet half the pot like i mean you know, i will give some simple rules to people who it's like their first time ever playing and just just kind of trying to get them because there's like different things they should be focusing on at that point but when you're trying to become a more sophisticated player like the way that you do that is not by just learning more and more rules the way you do that is by understanding how to find good 
plays on the fly in situations that you have not explicitly studied in advance. Yes. Anything else you want to say to Rick? Um, I think it's a good question, and I, I, pr I appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation with you to uh, try to find a consensus, because I think there's merit to both of the things um, that we're saying. And when we really dive into it, I don't think it's always that different. It's, a, it's the difference that we just talked about, where you're coming at it from one direction where you kind of just have to give a synopsis for the um, sake of time i'm doing the same thing maybe from a different direction and those two things sound different until we dive into the math and then when we dive into the math we see that the both approaches have a lot of similarities and so with the Thinking Poker podcast being a long-form podcast, we actually have time to dive into the math where we can't necessarily do it so much on Thinking Poker Daily or in some other um, short-form um, piece of content for public consumption. Yeah, and, and I do like when people, um, both you know, as, as a coach, sometimes this will happen too. I mean, people even be a little apologetic about it, like, uh, oh, I, you know, I, I was watching this video from from a different person. Sorry, but you know, they said this, and it seemed in tension with this other thing that you said. Like, I think those are great things to, to talk about. Yeah. Uh, I mean, a like there is a chance that I'm wrong. I mean, sometimes people are like, oh, Ben C B said this, and I'm like, oh well. I mean, if it really is in tension <laughs> with what I said, like he's probably right. But it's still useful to dig into into you know the, the why. Um, but also, there's there's a fair chance that there's not actually a tension between those things, and it is just yeah. a you know th there are different factors at work and you know why does it make sense to do you know to, to bet in the situation where, where he did you know he says he did over bet but then it sounded like i was saying this wasn't a spot to over bet like what what made that an exception i think you know trying to dig into those things i think there's often not as much difference between like you know there is a right way to play poker more or less um it's not just like oh some people play this this style and some people play that style like most of these things do have right answers and as long as you're getting your information from people who know what they're talking about there's not going to be a lot of daylight between them and so you know if, if it seems like there's a contradiction between them the more likely thing is that there is some nuance that um that is, is worth you know exploring why does there seem to be this tension yes yes uh, well thank you rick for the question um, and folks who are interested in hearing Carlos and me talk more about this, again, you can. Uh, we, we delve more into this uh, the Carlos style and um, you know, ways that he and I maybe do think differently about some of these things in that uh, exploiting small, uh, <laughs> <Exploiting Smalls, laughs> six tournaments video, which is available at nickcast.com. Yes. Um, Let's see, I think the next best question here is the one coming from, this is from Keith, uh, who asked us to discuss optimal bet sizing on the river. Keith says, part of my daily study is to play against the solver until I get five hands played 100% accurately. I do well on flop and turn, but I'm often incorrect with my river bet size. The way I think about it now is, one, does the river change the equities slash nuts advantage? If so, does it change in my favor? If so, I polarize. But what size? 100%, 150%, 200% shove? Uh, does the very top and very bottom bet the largest size? And the pretty strong and decent plus bet larger but not too large? And the stronger part of the condensed range bets less than pot and weaker hands? The check when the river card is neutral? Does any of this matter that much? Help! <laughs> yeah, I think this is a great question. Um, so I certainly have a lot to say about it, um, to the point where I want to give you the opportunity to go first if, if there's anything that you want to say off the top. Okay, so I'll, I'll say my flawed uh, summary of this, uh, uh, how to tackle this problem, just from what I've seen in solvers. So oftentimes, like this is what it kind of feels like in my head, like pre-flop, pretty easy. Flop has gotten easier for me in terms of um, uh, knowing like roughly what size to bet um, in most situations. And honestly, <laughs> this, this is where uh, this is a drastic over uh, simplification. A lot of times on the river, the bet is just all in. Mm -hmm. Like I see that so often in solvers. So my most confusing street is the turn. 
Like, I generally know what to do pre-flopping on the flop, and the river often is just all in. So the turn is where I kind of run into some problems. And I think um, Keith hit some of the uh, right things to be looking at in terms of, like, how the turn card changes the equities. And if it changes it direct, drastically in your favor, then you should be more likely to polarize. And I think the same thing applies to the river as well. And he he did he did mention that. Um, also, um, I don't know if like I don't know if this is correct, but this is the thought that came to mind when he mentioned if the river car um, changes things in his favor. Even if it doesn't change things in your favor, but the equities were already in your favor, like if the turn is a blank, like it, it hasn't really changed much, but I guess it just didn't change much when it was already good for you. I would view that as also a spot where you can continue to polarize um, on the river as you assume, assumingly had done on previous streets. Um, and my last comment is I'm a little bit confused on some of the stuff he says after talking about the polarized range because he starts talking about um, the very top and the very bottom of his range that's the polarized stuff then he looks at like another tier where you got some pretty strong hands and decent bluffs um, that want to bet big but not too big and then the stronger parts of the condensed range um uses like even smaller sizing and i think if we're talking about a polarized range then that condensed stuff we're not using a smaller sizing with it we're just not betting with it like i think that's what a polarized range means is you don't bet the condensed stuff so maybe he's conflating two different situations when he talks about that second part but that that could be me misunderstanding what he's saying, but that was the thought that came to mind uh, for me is like generally on the river, if you're in a situation where you can polarize, you generally want to go big. And if you can get all in, do so. And you know what? It's no limit hold them. So you can always get all in. <laughs> uh, it's just a matter of your, the composition of your range is what really needs some um, thought um, for, to make that um, correct. And as far as like, the condensed stuff, I think that's a, um, a separate question. So those are my general thoughts. So uh, I'm interested to hear what you have to say about this. Yeah, I think um, I'm, I'm on the same page about most of that. And I can shed a little more light on the, the final bit about the um, using different sizes on the river. Um, it will. So you're right that there are many situations where you'll just see a single size from a solver of just like all in is, is kind of the only bet size that it uses on the river. Um, you can find spots where it's going to use multiple sizes on the river, and what you'll see then is that it, it is like the somewhat thinner value bets are often using the and small is not going to mean like twenty percent pot here. Like the you don't really see, especially if you're in position on the river. So in position and out of position is also sort of a, a complicated. Um, or it's, it's an extra layer of, of complication. So I'm going to talk mostly about being in position first, and then I'll talk a little bit about exceptions for being out of position. So as the in position player, it's fairly straightforward on the river. I mean, I think this is really where bet sizing is least complicated. Uh, I think people are less comfortable with it because it doesn't come up as often. So like you've played a lot more flop spots than you have river spots. But really, the, the principles behind bet sizing on the river are much less complicated than you know on earlier streets. You have to think about things like, um, well, you know, the, the turn might change the board texture, the river might change. The the board texture and there's draws and there's equity denial and none of that matters on the river and the river's just like do you have the best hand or don't you um so you know, it's it's and especially if you're in position where it's like well if you check the hand is just over you don't have to think about maybe i want to have some check raises some check calls or whatever um so you know, in position bet sizing on the river this is as simple as best bet sizing ever gets the ability to bet a polarized range depends on you having either the nuts or a hand that is functionally the nuts, meaning that it's better than anything that your opponent can have. Uh, and then also depends on you having some hands with incentive to bluff, meaning hands that have little or no chance of winning if they check. So the main time that you would see um, 
you might not see someone overbet with the nuts, or is not see a, a sovereign one overbet with the nuts, would be if it was a situation where it was difficult to have enough bluff to balance that. So if we're talking about you know going all in for like ten times the, the pot, um, well, even then you wouldn't. I mean, if, if it was just a couple of combinations that you were going all in with, like you wouldn't really need that many combinations of bluffs either. But um, if we were talking like. Um, yeah, I guess that, like if a flush comes in on on the river. I mean, flushes are a little complicated because blockers tend to be a, a, a bigger deal here. But if we were talking about like you know whether you can shove with anything other than the nuts for for value, the number of bluffs that you have available to you is going to start to become relevant because the question becomes what incentive does your opponent have to call you with worse? You know, when you make a huge shove. The concern is always, well, you know, can't my opponent just be like, oh, that's obviously a strong hand and fold. Like, why, why can't my opponent just fold to these huge shoves? So it has to be the, the risk of a bluff that is incentivizing your opponent to call you. And as you start trying to make this play with hands that are weaker than the nuts, um, then you need to get called by weaker and weaker hands <laughs> to compensate for <laughs> the fact that your opponent might have very strong hands themselves. So the more confident you are that your opponent is capped, the easier it is for you to overbet. Like if your opponent can't possibly have a hand better than the tenth nuts, then like you can treat the first through ninth nuts. Like all of those are just you know very safe to overbet. There's no risk. Like it's not trivial for your opponent to fold the tenth nuts because that's the best hand you could possibly have. Uh, we we can still see overbetting and, and big shoves even in situations where um, your opponent could easily have have the nuts. He just has to have enough other hands besides the nuts that you know, he and, and your bet size has to be such that he can't just only call with the nuts and fold everything else. So essentially, you have to you have a target. You have a sense of what is the hand that I need to get called by in order to make this shove profitable, and you need to make sure that your bet size is such that um, if your opponent only called with a range of hands that was ahead of you, like if your opponent just sort of said, well, he shoved the river and I don't have the nuts, so I'm going to fold, then your, your bluffs would need to be profitable in that situation. Like You need to have enough bluffs available to you to incentivize your opponent to call you with enough hands weaker than yours to make up for the fact that you're sometimes going to run into the nuts. Does that part make sense? Right. It does. It does. It's, it's a question of uh, a- appropriately constructing your range to support the size. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. And making sure that you have the tools to do that. Like, because sometimes depending on how the board is developed, you might just not really have that many hands that you'd be incentivized to bluff with. Um, like this could come up fairly often if you've like called two bets. You know, you've called a big bet on the flop. You called a big bet on the turn. Now your opponent checks you on the river. It might be kind of difficult for you to have bluffs in this situation. Like calling big bets on the flop and turn is a pretty strong play. It's a difficult thing to do with weak hands, and especially if you know, certain draws have come in where it's like some of the weaker hands you might have made those calls with were, were draws. I think there can be situations where you just kind of run out of bluffing candidates. And if you yeah. tried to shove too thinly here, it would be pretty easy for your opponent to just fold and be like, well, you can't really, it's very hard for you to be bluffing here. So why would I pay off this big bet? Yeah. Cause you kind of, uh, want calling the previous bet, especially big bets is kind of a, uh, action that condenses your range mm-hmm. to the point where you have so much showdown value that it doesn't, that your range doesn't have enough of those weaker hands that you would need to turn it into a bluff in this spot. Now, you can run into situations also where, especially if all-in is really big, you know, it's four or five times the pot or something. Um, It may still, you may still see a solver doing that with a range, and it is usually going to be... the the very strongest hands are going to be the hands that are, that are in there for value and then as a bluff sometimes blockers actually matter more than it being the very bottom of your range blocker the, the bigger the pot is and the bigger the bet is the more blockers tend to val- tend to matter where if you imagine like a, a, a smaller bet might get called by you know, maybe 40 or 50 combinations of hands where if you know you're blocking two or three hands your opponent might have but there's 40 or 50 hands that are going to call you being able to remove two of those or you know being sure your opponent doesn't have two of those 50 calling candidates is not that big of a deal but if we're talking about a much bigger shove where maybe there's only 10 or 20 combos of hands that are going to call you and you can block two of those <laughs> that that's a much bigger yeah. chunk of the potential calling range like you're getting a, a much higher percentage of folds um, from from the 
portion of the opponent's range that you really care about that's a candidate for calling you because of those those blockers. So really big bet sizes. You know, if it's just like, well, I'm going to call with the nuts and fold everything else, then if you can block the nuts, that's a very big deal. <laughs> or like, I'm only going to call with the set or two pair, and you can you can block the most likely set that your opponent might have, which also means you're blocking some two pairs. That's a really big deal. Versus if it's like any pair is going to call you, then it's hard to block like any pair. I mean, any you can block <laughs> a few of them, but there's so many other ones that um, the, the, the blocker is just not that significant. Yeah, and that that's probably one of the benefits to using these bigger river sizes is, uh, especially if you're in a situation where you have those blockers, um, be, it's like it's a pretty strong weapon to have in your range when you're using big sizes. And so uh, when you have those weapons, you should probably use the big size to uh, take advantage of them. And when you don't have those weapons, is probably where you do less polarizing. Um, uh, that would be my guess. Yeah, and the other, um, so the, the, all these all these factors could still hold. I mean, you're you're capable of having the nuts. You have lots of money behind. You have some some appropriate bluffs. So like, you're going to have some hands that you want to shove. It doesn't necessarily follow from that that you want to shove your whole range. I mean, you might also have other hands that are like doing pretty well. Like you're ahead of. 80% of the hands your opponent might have, but you are losing to like the best 20% of your opponent's hands. So like if you, you don't want to like make a huge shove where you're just getting called by those best 20% of hands, but you do have the best hand really often and, and you want to get some value from it. So you will see in this situation a, a solver using multiple sizes on the river. In fact, I think there's an example in mathematics of poker where they actually demonstrate that um, I, I believe the game here is that uh, both players are dealt you know, um, essentially every hand between zero and one. So like you, you could be dealt 0 0.001, 0 0.002, 0 0.003. You know, they're like using calculus to, to solve this. Um, but they kind of right. construct this game where you could have an infinite, both players could have like an infinite number of hands. And it ends up being the case that you like the imposition player is just betting a bunch of different sizes and every single one of them is is balanced. But like, you know, there there's a bluff and a value bet for betting, you know, full pot and a bluff and a value bet for betting 99% of pot and a bluff and a value bet for betting 98% of pot. And, and those are, I don't know if this... If, if you read the book, this makes sense. I feel like I'm not explaining it super yeah. well. <laughs> but you can yeah, essentially I, I can you can get the solver to use an infinite number of bet sizes. Yeah, I can remember reading the book, and when they started talking about limits, <laughs> uh, that's when I closed the book. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, there was another part I remember about completing the square, <laughs> which excited me so much as a uh, math teacher, but I was like, I don't think I want to be doing this in a poker game <laughs> or even preparing for a poker game. I was like, you know what, if this is what I have to, uh, if I have to complete the square to uh, play in these like uh, Aria high rollers, then I'll just play on Bovada for the rest of my life. <laughs> the, um, the, the like high level bottom line here is that you can still value bet these hands that are not the nuts or not even especially close to the nuts. Uh, as long as if, if you, you use a smaller size, right? I mean, so if, if you're making a pot size bet instead of a 3x pot bet, um, now your opponent has to uh, call that bet at least half the time, or else your bluffs are going to be profitable. So you know, if, if the you know, hands better than yours are only like 20% of your opponent's range, they also have to call the bunch of hands worse than yours, or else your bluffs are going to end up being profitable in this situation. So by using a smaller size, you can incentivize them to call with more hands such that you will be out of their calling range. Right. So, so am I correct in saying that what you just mentioned is what you should do when you don't have an opportunity to polarize if you don't have an opportunity to polarize because the board or the action didn't didn't work out in your favor then this is how you approach betting the river but if you have an opportunity to polarize you should uh, is that no, I'm, I'm saying these things are not inconsistent um so we could see a solver okay. using two different sizes one of which is built around the nuts and is, is a much larger size like you know even a 10x pot shove or something um and that's like the nuts and some well-chosen bluffs and then also a smaller bet size um with a different range of hands which is built around thinner value bets and is not such a large bet and would this smaller bet size be so like we're talking about the river here and we're similar in position so maybe like half pot at the smallest 
is what you're thinking here or no? Yeah, you don't really see – it's pretty rare that you would see a bet smaller than half pot as the imposition player. Um, and, I mean, small in this case could – like if big is 10x pot, small might be 2x pot or, or full pot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just a question of what size do you have to use to incentivize your opponent to call with hands worse than whatever you're trying to value bet. Like if you're trying to value bet the 20th nuts and your opponent can have the 1st through 19th nuts, you have to make sure that they're also calling with enough hands worse than yours to make up for the risk of running into better hands. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. See that. I think that answers one of the initial questions I had about um, Keith's question when he initially started talking about polarizing, and then he started talking about how he should bet the condensed part of his range. Um, that didn't make sense to me because I thought you check the condensed parts of your range when you're polarizing. But what it sounds like to me, you're saying, is that it's not a question of polarizing or uh, betting a polarized range or, or condensed range is more of a question of betting like a really polarized range with the nut with the, the tip top and then like to me even though it's smaller for this situation like relatively speaking a 2x pot bet is still fairly polar uh, even if it's a lot less polar than a 10x pot bet. Yeah, and any and, any river bet is going to be polar right? because there's no yeah. there's no equity denial, there's no semi bluffing. Like you're always either value betting or bluffing. So it's just a question of like how strong of a hand, how strong does your hand have to be to value bet? And the bigger you bet, the higher that threshold is going to be. Yeah. So you don't bet the condensed hands. You're betting a very very polarized range and a sort of polarized range. But no, at no point on the river in position. Do you bet the condensed portions of your range in theory? Yes, and this is the the other thing that I I've so far have, have deliberately ignored and I'm going to address now, which is that when you make that smaller <laughs> bet, the risk is not only that you might get called by him that's better than yours, the other, in fact, even larger risk is that you might get check raised. And that's a big part of why we don't see like small river bets um, where, you know, if, if, like betting a quarter pot in position on the river um the value of betting quarter pot is just not going to be that high like the hands that would want to bet quarter pot are pretty thin bets you know like that that's why they're betting so small is that they're not really expecting to be that big of a favorite and so they have to incentivize calls for some pretty bad hands so you know even the ev of of getting called is not going to be that high because there's gonna be lots of hands better than yours that are calling so even if your opponent were only allowed to call or fold the ev of that bet wouldn't be that high by definition that's what a thin value bet is you know it doesn't you're, you're not a big favorite against the calling range so then once you factor in that you also might get check raised by a polarized range meaning that sometimes you're getting check raised as a, as a bluff and your hand is losing its value once it gets check raised by that polarized range then the bet just becomes undesirable right the the, the ev loss from the risk of getting raised overwhelms the, the potential ev gain of getting called so you, you do need to expect to be ahead more than 51 percent of the time on these bets because you have to factor in the risk of getting raised as well uh, and that also means that usually what we see is if there are going to be multiple bet sizes on the river, you know, the, the nuts will often mix across both of those sizes because using the smaller, like if, if, if you imagine the extreme case where it's just like, okay, I, I use the huge size when I have the nuts and then I use the moderate size with my thinner value bets then the danger is that your opponent can just check raise those thinner bets with impunity because you never have a hand that's excited to face that raise um, one way you can deal with that is you could just sort of suck it up and, and call at minimum defense frequency and make them indifferent to bluffing. Uh, but what often ends up happening is that you're incentivized to put some of your nuts into that smaller bet range as well, um, precisely because you want to induce that check raise. Right? So you, your, your nut hands can make as much money by betting small and inducing the check raise as they can just shoving themselves. And you often see the nuts mixing across both of those ranges. Now, when you're playing against actual humans, you might have a preference here. You might think my average opponent is not very good at check raising the river, and so I am just kind of blatantly make smaller bets with my thin value hands and don't really worry about getting check raises as a bluff. And when I have strong hands, I just make big bets and count on my opponents being oblivious and calling too often. Uh, I think that's often, you know, practically speaking, a, a good strategy for dealing with less sophisticated players but it's obviously not how solvers are going to approach the situation 
Yeah, and I'm so glad you you summarized it that way because I was kind of anticipating uh, the problem that we initially started with, which is we'll say something in, in these conversations that people will pull one thing out <laughs> and just take it as like a rule. It's like Andrew says, never bet smaller than uh, half pot on the river. It's like, but you summarize it well by saying, basically saying that that's in theory. But when you're playing against humans so you can predict how they're going to respond, just make the bet that gets you the response that you expect um, the vast majority of the time. I've also tried to insert the caveat a few times saying in position. Because yes. out of position, there's no such thing as reopening the betting. The betting is open. Right? If, if you if you <laughs> check the river, your opponent can bet anyway. Um, so there's really not an important difference between checking and min betting from out of position. Like the, Those end up being pretty much the same play. Uh, so like a, a small bet from out of position is not giving your opponent some new opportunity that they wouldn't have otherwise had. Whereas if you're in position, you have the opportunity to just check and just guarantee yourself a showdown. Um, it's you know Thin value bets are going to be less appealing as the in position player because the alternative is checking and getting a guaranteed showdown. When you're at a position, you can't just check for a guaranteed showdown. So that's this is where the idea of a blocking bet comes from. And you will, in fact, see some yeah. use blocking bets. I think for a while, blocking bets were considered like a very fishy thing to do because people were doing them badly. Like people were only block betting with hands that didn't want to get raised. And then it was just easy to raise block bets and <laughs> take people's money. Uh, so the solver, of course, is, is going to be balanced in this. And like it will sometimes block bet, like I was talking about with the, you know, the smaller bet for the imposition player, um, block betting with hands that actually want to induce the, the raise and are going to be happy to call it. Um, but block betting is actually something that you'll see fairly frequently from the out of position player as a way of squeezing a little bit of um, thin value from some of their good but not great uh hands yeah it's so funny how solvers kind of vindicated a lot of the fishy stuff that we used to do from out of position uh it seems like it's, it's favorite the uh, out of position plays a lot more than in position plays uh but because i'm thinking of like um donk bets is another one that people uh used to frown upon but then the solvers oh, no there's actually some reason for this which is another out of position uh out of position play in and these um blocking bets uh, that you're talking about are, are very similar i think also that the huge shove with ace king is something that um yeah <laughs> you look at, like, i was so happy because that was a, that was a carlos special a couple <laughs> years ago <laughs> yeah it's really not that uncommon to see the solver just ripping it for 40 big blinds with ace king pre-flop <laughs> And you know what? I'm going to go out on a limb here. I don't know how much of a limb this is, but I want to make a prediction. Um, solvers, from what I understand, maybe I'm wrong on this also, but I, I think solvers initially started being used um, uh, in cash games or just to like solve cash games. And it's only recently been applied to tournaments more. And like, you know, you're starting to see more like. I see them solved and stuff like that's one thing that I know that um, um, Dominic um, Nietzsche does with um, DTO poker like when it was first released it was basically um, cash game um, spots but he's like started to release some ICM spots so I assume that that's the case across the board that solvers are being used more so in, with ICM now and here's my prediction. In a couple of years, we'll find that there's a lot more shoving um, for a lot bigger stacks in the late game of tournaments than tends to be um, normal right now. That's just my prediction. We'll see if that actually happens. Or maybe it's already happened. Or maybe I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. But like the Ace-King thing is a great example. Like it was unheard of to just rip that in in a lot of spots um it was heard of but it was frowned upon <laughs> a couple of years ago until the solvers kind of vindicated it um uh, but that's just like you know without icm i think with icm that becomes even more extreme like maybe you can do it for even bigger stacks or even um looser ranges that's my prediction yeah i think that's that's plausible uh, and i think that you know the dunk betting is a great example of that phenomenon and that, that's how it got the name i was like oh this is a bet that only dunks make. <laughs> uh, but i do think it's yeah. like that to say that it has a place isn't to say that like the way those people were doing it was 
good. And I, I, mean, I think there is this problem of people, like, there's so much ego in poker where people are more concerned about like not doing something that's going to make them look stupid than they are actually making good plays where the, oh, yeah. that, that's a fish move. Uh, I mean, I feel this way about limping. You know, there's a lot of people who really will just turn their nose. Like, I never limp. I don't ever limp behind. And I understand it's not really something solvers do too much, but you know, we've talked about this before. I think there are, are many situations in like real game conditions with when you're playing with people who are very bad at poker. <laughs> like, it, you should be open-minded about um Limping, even limping being a core part of your strategy and I think that there are people who are more concerned about just, oh limping is just a fishy play and so I just never do that and they just have this kind of mental block against um, against doing it and I think you're being open minded to these kind of things I think what, what you're saying about solvers is, is important is that it has demonstrated that, like there is a good way to do many of these things and it might be that you're used to seeing those things done in a bad way but that doesn't mean they can't be done in a good way it just means that the people who are currently exploring them are not doing it well. Yeah, and you actually do see the solvers doing a, a bit of limping uh, as stacks start to get shallow and shallow. They yeah. do more and more. Uh, you just don't see it uh, um, as much from deeper stacks. But I agree with you. It's a good, uh, in the right conditions, it's, it's always important to be open-minded. Um, and if you understand the fundamentals of the game, you can kind of create new strategies um, based on the game situations you're in because each hand you play is going to be unique so it's hard um, for beginners to do this but experienced players can kind of like you know figure it out at a time like like you always say uh, I guess we're just going to have to play poker uh, yeah you got it that, that, that's basically what it means is like you know using what you know about the game to figure it out at the time Man, I, I think about all the people. Imagine all these people who like stop playing poker like on Black Black Friday. If they kind of like drop back into poker right now and they listen to this conversation, they'd be like, "What? What? This is good. All those times I was told not to do this." I'm, I'm coaching yeah. a few people who make that decision. Right <laughs> it's fascinating. Um, I, I've mentioned. I, I'm also have coached a few people who are brand new to poker and starting straight by working with solvers and kind of and, and that's very difficult for me to wrap my head around of like what are the things that they know versus need to be taught because a lot of things that i think of as more fundamental like the things that you would learn first they have not yeah. learned and it's it wasn't really that those things were necessarily more fundamental it was just like the way that people i was used to people learning poker because i started playing in like 2005 uh or four really and then you know, now just, you know people some people are, are just having a different entree to it 15 years later and it's not necessarily that one of those would you needed to come first it just did um but it, 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 so in, in many ways i gel better with those people where I, I can still kind of step back in time and be like oh yeah i remember what it was like to play poker in 2009 and like <laughs> here are all the things that i've learned in the last 10 years that i could try to like catch you up on now or christ 13 years for 2009. <laughs> yeah yeah uh, but yeah that is very interesting uh, anything else you want to say to Keith uh, no um, other than um, thank you for writing this was a really good question I think it um, um, set us up um, for some good conversation yeah and actually I'll throw one more plug on here which is that I have a series on um, or a course on South for Why about toy games which it covers some of the same material that play optimal poker does so some of the toy games that i talk about on there will be familiar to people who have read play optimal poker but this is one of the big things that i get into in there that i did not get into into play optimal poker is playing around with the ace to five game game where both players are dealt uh, a random hand between an ace and a five and um Think about if, if we change one of these players' ranges, like give you know, one of these players can't have an ace or a king, so one person is dealt a queen through a five, the other person is dealt an ace through a five. How does that change the river strategy? What if you know one person uh, has a very polar range and they can't have a nine, eight, seven, or ten? How does that 
change their river strategy just kind of looking at what if if we make ranges more or less polar or one range stronger than the other essentially these these variables that he's asking about like I've, i tried to construct a toy game that does address some of these things so i and i was giving you some of the like high level insights from that but if you want to see this worked out in a more rigorous way uh, i do have a series called toy games on um on self for why and uh, i will drop an affiliate link in the uh in the show notes and on twitter as well so uh, if you're inclined to sign up and watch that it would certainly help me out if you uh click that affiliate link when you did it yeah and i will definitely highly recommend that for the people who are listening if you've never watched any of the song for why material is is great they 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 didn't let andrew handle the graphics so that's a really good thing <laughs> they, they they let the professionals handle the graphics and then andrew as the uh professional when it comes to the poker handles that poker that part of it and that's a that's a great marriage thank you carlos i appreciate that Hello and welcome from... No, that's not how we do this. <laughs> it is, right? No. Hello and welcome to episode 374 of the Thinking Poker Podcast from Owings, Maryland. Got it inside all of the land. 